Hi there, you're listening to Harris Sabalukos and the Cinematography Podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ilya, how's it going? It's going really well. Wow. And you are very enthusiastic. What, what's going so well? Well, before I get into what's going so well, Harris Zamberlucas is on the show. Of course, Holy DP of Belfast and Death in the Nile and a, a bunch of other things. And uh, we get to talk about all kinds of stuff. And uh, spoiler alert, uh, the first thing that we talk about is Locke, which it's a polarizing oh, I love movie. That movie. I love that movie. It's so what's great. polarizing? I've never heard anyone dislike that Oh my that God. Movie. Some, some people really? are, yeah, some people are not Locke fans and some people are not My Dinner with Andre fans, but that movie is so like nail biting edge of your seat and it all takes place in a car. It's freaking great. I love it. It's so good. I, I like that you uh, default to comparing it to My Dinner with Andre, which is, uh, a movie about two people having dinner and talking philosophy because Locke is a thriller. It just never leaves one car. It's the same concept, though. It's conversations in a set location for the entire length of the movie. And in that yeah. regards, they're, they're very similar. So but you never we never ever see the other side of the phone call, which is yeah, which you is never fun. leave the car. It's like yeah. it, it opens outside of the car and then never leaves the car for the rest of the movie. And it's basically just great directing, great cinematography and mm-hmm. Tom Hardy. Incredible performance. That's all you got. That's and the whole movie. And you get to hear a little bit of like how they did that, which is which is what that interview is, is so much fun. But the reason everything is so great right now, well, you know, everything is not great. You know, there's a land war in Europe going on right now. There's, yeah, a, lot, yeah, there's yeah. a lot of things yeah. that are that are not great. But personally, in the micro, we're over a million downloads now. We are millionaire downloaders in that people have yeah, downloaded if, this show. If we'd been paid one dollar per download, we'd be millionaires right now. <laughs> we'd be doing so, we'd be doing so well. But I'm I'm pretty sure that people would not be paying a dollar for every download for our show. So I'm happy to, that we've given it away for free and we did not make any money, or at least not not any real money. But I'm super thrilled that we can say now we've had millions of downloads, even though it really it's, is it's, it's one. Is pretty sweet. <laughs> it is pretty sweet. It's pretty amazing. You and I have been doing this now for what? Eight years, seven years. years. Yeah, about eight years. And I know we've talked about it on the show before, but like you were working at uh, Dalsa Mm -hmm. when I first pitched you the idea of doing a podcast. That's right. At at the time, you that would have been two thousand six. And and you were telling me about like all these amazing A list DPs who were going in and out of Dalsa checking out you know the the origin camera and shooting in four K. And I was like, you should do a podcast where you interview all these DPs. Or I might have suggested you should do a podcast where you have me interview all these DPs. Yeah, and then we we started. Well, if that was two thousand six, then we uh, how many years later did well, we start? We started in twenty fourteen. It's now twenty twenty two. So yeah, it's 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 been, it's been a minute. And the, yeah. our first interview was at NAB in a hotel in Las Vegas with yeah. Jason Wingrove. That's right. You can hear that interview, which probably feels sort of long and rambly by standards today. I think we've become much more of a well-oiled machine. And you know what's really great? And I got to say, like, when I talk to Harris, Harris is a fan of the podcast. He's listened to the podcast before. He said a lot of nice stuff to me about it. I just did another interview with a wonderful Scandinavian filmmaker, and he was a big fan of the show. And we're going to get to hear all that coming up in the, in the coming weeks and stuff. But we've been getting some good feedback. And I've heard it from several people now saying, like, you know, no offense to the wonderful guests you have on the show, 
But they will actually, some people out there are so crazy. They want to hear more of us. They want to hear you and me do this. They want to hear banter. Mm-mm. Yeah, I, I know. As much mm. as that kind of makes me cringe, it turns out we've got some fans. We've got some people who really like this. They like hearing us yammer on about whatever whatever it might be. Ah, that hurts. That burns. <laughs> I, 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 don't, I don't know that I, I think that there's exactly enough of us uh, running our stinking yaps on this show. But uh, especially through the pandemic, it's been a wonderful experience because it meant that I had an appointment to talk to one of my favorite best friends, you, once a week through the whole thing. And, uh, you know, that was great. But I cannot I will not do an all yakety yak. You, you and know, me. it's it's already been pitched to us. Uh, our producer, Alana Cody, has said there is some demand for a yakety yak episode. Now, we've been really good, I think, about keeping our yakety yak down to uh, the minimum. But but clearly, I think if we actually thought it out and talked about stuff, it sounds so self-indulgent to me to make it you know all about us yammering about here. I'm yeah. using that word yammer again. But regardless, you, you understand jibber jabber. Chibber jabber. Yeah, that that that's the stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, so hey, but congratulations to us. Congratulations on a million downloads. Uh, wow. congratulations to you. There's a lot of podcasts out there. They never go for this long. They never get so many episodes. They never get so many downloads. We're in the top 2%. It's like after this threshold, it's like kind of a no man's land to lend like the people who are like the the really top people, the top 1%. So, you know. I think honestly, credit goes to Alana Cody for that. Because when she came on board to produce this, that was when we started going to one episode per week. And it forced us to work a lot harder at this. And it forced us to talk to a lot more DPs, which is the whole reason we're here. When it was just you and me doing it and I was editing it when I had the time to edit it, sometimes we'd do an interview and it wouldn't be posted for months. Months, yeah. And that that is not and also actually Ben Katz deserves a lot of a lot of credit too because because he, he's cranking out one episode per week. That's true, and and actually during Sundance we crank out a lot more than one a week, sometimes several yeah. in a week. So, but really, you know, I think that's kind of the difference between people who uh, podcasting is uh, sometimes a hobby and it sort of started for us as a hobby, but now it's, it's still time's kind of by. a hobby. Let's be honest. <laughs> okay, it's still a hobby, but it is a hobby that really re- requires you and I getting on Zoom and spending probably. 45 minutes at least once a week and employs plus, two other plus people. Plus all the interviews. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Plus all the interviews, plus two other people getting involved just to get this thing into the semblance of shape and I want to say consistency that it is now. Mm. So I'm glad that we did it. It was worth all the investment, I think. People, the way people talk about it, I feel like it's it's worth the investment. And, you know, I have enough people who tell me, like, you know, they come into the shop and they say, okay, I'm looking forward to the next episode or can you tell me what's on the next episode? It's, it's great. Do you, you tell know? them? Do you give them the sneak peek? No, not usually, because truthfully, uh, Alana Cody keeps it shrouded in mystery, so I actually don't know what's always coming up next. So it's kind of mm. a little bit like a surprise, like, hey, who are we doing these host wraps for today? Or who went, what's coming out next week? Or yeah, who, yeah. who are we supposed to be talking to? So uh, r- blissfully, I keep most of that out of my head, because uh, thankfully, I don't have to keep it all in my head. Now there are other people involved who, who can keep that straight. And I guess I see Ben Katz often, and you know, I see him with his head set on and his head down, and he's just chomp, 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 cutting away and making it happen. And laughing at all the hilarious jokes that we make. <laughs> no, not usually. I think it's usually eye-rolling. He's probably eye-rolling right now. So. <laughs> <laughs> laugh, Ben Katz. Laugh. Uh, all right, Ben. Yeah, let's get into the interview with Harris Zambarlukas. Here he is. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. 
Joining me now is Harris Sambalukas. He, of course, is the cinematographer of Belfast, which is a fantastic movie that is widely available now. You can view it at home. And then also the cinematographer of uh, Death on the Nile, which is brand new, which is I think has is, is just come out. And many, many other movies that you've probably seen, including movies like Thor, you know, just to, to mention a little movie like Thor and Mamma Mia and, and, and many other things. So, uh, Harris, thank you so much for being on the show. Pleasure. I'm really glad to be here. And Harris, you're a fan of the show. I, you were just telling me uh, before we got started, you, you've heard this before. I am. I'm a big fan. You've interviewed all my idols and all the current films that I've, I've been watching that I want to hear about. So, yes, I'm a fan. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, we're going to dive right in. And I, we got a ton of stuff to talk about. But I think I want to start not necessarily at the beginning because I don't want to forget about it and really, really loved the movie. And I really loved how it looked. And I, I'm just going to start off right here. Tell me about working on the movie Locke. Locke oh. is like, <laughs> Locke is a movie that you wouldn't think that there's a, a ton of stuff you can do because it all takes place, you know, with one protagonist in a car, mostly on the phone. And that's, that's basically the whole movie. Tell me about your experience when you got the script for that. Like, you know, what your thought was, how you're going to turn this into a movie. Well, I got the call from my friend Guy Healy. Guy Healy is a, was a fantastic AD, now producer, and he had this idea of a, a film scripted by uh, Steve Knight and directed by Steve Knight. And Steve had done a film called Hummingbird that was shot by the greatest of greats, Chris Mengus. And at the end of their film Hummingbird, Chris did some tests with uh, the Alexa at the time, an Alexa Mini, in a certain part of London. He said you could shoot in a car with available light at night in certain streets. And this got Steve thinking and he wrote this fantastic script, I believe in, a matter of weeks. And then he approached Chris about it, and Chris said, I don't want to do this. Um, <laughs> well, <laughs> it, it's a challenge. Yeah, for sure. It's a challenge for anyone. Yeah, I am Chris's biggest fan. I absolutely adore his, his work, and he's a big inspiration. But then Guy and I had worked together while he was an AD three times, and we became very close during those films. And one of the films we did together was Sleuth with Kenneth. And we often talked how that was a film with two people and a room. And uh, one day we should make a film with just one person. And he literally <laughs> called me about 10 years later and said, I have this film. It's one person in a car. And Chris doesn't want to shoot it. Would you be willing to read it? So I read it. I was in Costa Rica at the time on a surf trip and the thought of going back to London and having something to do in the winter, because this was in January, was interesting. I just finished Jack Ryan and that had a lot of car sequences and a lot of nighttime car shots. And I was about to start Cinderella and Locke seemed like the perfect aperitif to Cinderella. Um, <laughs> almost identical films. Um, <laughs> yes, yes, almost identical. <laughs> so those are the two films I shot that year. And I got really excited about it. I got excited about the idea of a film taking place in a car. And I kept asking, will we ever cut back to the people on the phone? And they kept saying, maybe, maybe, let's just shoot it in a car and we'll see, we'll see. And I honestly thought one day I would get the call that we would shoot the other actors. I mean, we had Olivia Coleman, for God's sakes. Yeah, yeah. And you never see her. But Steve had a plan. He said, I would like to shoot it. We had a nine-day shoot. I'd like to, we have, I think we had five days with Tom. 
So we were going to do three nights, basically. And he said, I'd like to shoot the entire script in one night. And I'm going to put the other actors in a hotel on the motorway and they're going to phone in and everything's going to happen live. Wow. Uh, and we're going to do it from beginning to end one night. Then we're going to do it again a second night and then a third night. And then we'll fill in a, a few other things like Tom getting into the car and some drive-bys. And I just had to devise a plan of how to do it. Um, Steve was quite open with me. He says, as long as we can do that, I'm open to hear suggestions on how to do it. So it just got me thinking, how can you be on a face and they're driving and you almost feel or see what they're seeing? And a car's a perfect place for that because you kind of, you, you have windows and things like that to reflect. But I had to devise a way where you could see the reflections more. And that's when experiences from other films come in. So I experimented with some 3D and I was interested in these 3D beam splitters. So I, I guess the most interesting thing with, the, with that film is that I used a beam splitter for most of the film. So you could always kind of make calculated reflections. But it was, it was such an interesting project to do. And in a similar way to Belfast, a very, very personal project and one that kind of was the essence of my decision to be a filmmaker and one that I did thinking no one would watch. And it seems that like a few people apart from my relatives and Steve's relatives have actually watched it. And it seems to be a film that caught people's, I believe, heart more than anything else because I think it's actually a film full of heart. I agree. There's a lot of emotion and it, it's right on the surface and the, the performance is just incredible. I mean, you get sucked into the story and at various times I was thinking to myself, they're going to start showing us something else. They're going to like, they're going to go somewhere else. And then that doesn't happen, but it doesn't matter because you're on the edge of the seat. You're, you can't wait to see what happens. There's, there's very few movies that I think successfully pull it off. Maybe like my dinner with Andre and then stuff like that. You, you feel engrossed in the story that they don't have to, to go anywhere. And the fact that I mean, Tom Hardy's in basically every, almost every single shot in that, that movie. It's, it's fundamentally unlike almost anything I've ever seen, period. And uh, mm. I, I have to say, it's, it's a wonderful feather in your cap, too, because when I look at some of your other work, and I, I've, I've seen many, many of the things that you've done, I try to think to myself, like, this is the same person who did Locke. This is the same person who shot this. And it, you're like a chameleon. They're so different. There's so many different things. But the way that you photographed Locke, I feel like it couldn't possibly be any other way, and it shouldn't be any other way. It's so compelling to sit there and it feels very intimate. It feels like you are, are experiencing everything that Tom Hardy is experiencing through the movie. And I have to say, it's like, you know, you have these beats, you're, you're shooting it basically almost like a play over the course of an evening, multiple evenings, and then it gets cut together. What was the biggest challenge for you besides having to have this physical beam splitter on the front of the camera? Was it, uh, I mean, was there any part that you were like, you know, this isn't working for me, or maybe we need to move this around? What, what is it uh, about the movie that was the most difficult thing for you to overcome? I think the thing that you have to overcome is always on a film is to kind of leave your preconceptions beside and to listen. I spent a lot of time listening while we were shooting as well, because I wouldn't look at the, I'd set up, basically I'd set up three cameras I kind of did various tests. I'm a tester. I'm a fanatic tester. And it's not just for a film. It's I just test ideas out all the time. And they may not be useful at one time. They use, they just, it'll pop up five, six years later and it'll have a voice. And if you listen hard, 
to what you're doing at the moment, you might, you know, one of your tests or experimentations or thoughts might be uh, useful at a later stage. So I guess I listened to Steve a lot. He had written this. I think the beauty of the story is that is word for word what Steve wrote. There was zero improvisation mm. in that. Those are Steve's words. So it's like an Old Testament story almost about making a decision and sticking to it and all those things. And, and I loved that. And I felt compelled to kind of uh, say it from a point of view. And that point of view was only going to be the protagonist. And I think we were clear about that. And that's why we never cut to anyone else. And again, the rest of the cast was incredible. You, you have to have a, an Olivia Coleman that's that brilliant that you don't actually have to see her to feel everything. I mean, she's so good, you don't even have to see her. But I guess if I had rebelled and said, we need Russian arms and we need, which I'm so glad today, my grip sent me a fantastic, uh, uh, about the, the Russian arms has been changed to Ukraine. <laughs> and I'm like, that is our filmmaking community using wit and humor against hate and oppression. And I love it. I, I love it wow. too. And actually, that's my short end. That's what I talked about is that, you know, I had no idea that the Russian arm was actually made in the Ukraine and that uh, Filmotechnic is a Ukrainian. And I think it's great that they renamed their product uh, very clearly now. It is the U hyphen crane. It, it's a pun, <laughs> but let me tell you that uh, they, they can totally get away with that. So <laughs> no, and they should. And why shouldn't we use yeah. humor when there's so much hate around us? I, um, you're, 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 you're preaching to the choir. I'm, I'm right there with you. I think, uh, I think it's wonderful if you if you fight fire with water you know it's it's way better than fire with fire exactly yeah exactly uh, anyway um, i didn't mean to go down go, go down this tangent but it's, it's a beautiful tangent and i'm glad that we did uh we could talk about Locke for you know the, the entire length of this interview and, and and i hope someday maybe we can we can hang out and we can talk about it some more but let's go way back let's start to the early days of getting into this career what was the moment for you the moment when you realized that shooting moving images could be a career that this could be something that not only is a career but a career that you would like to do and that you, you want to go after. My initial understanding that cinematography was possible was in my first year at Central St. Martin School of Art and Design on my foundation course. And I was a fine arts student trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And I tried uh, cinema. I, I went from wanting to be a painter to wanting to be a cinematographer. And I pretty much knew immediately that it would be cinematography and not directing. Um, I was interested in the visual storytelling that filmmaking could do, not so much the manipulation of emotions through, through actors and directing. But the moment I felt like, oh my God, it's actually happening, was on my first film with my film school best friend at uh, Hamlet Sarkissian. We made Camera Obscura. That was our first film together and my first feature film. And that really was kind of the turning point for me. I'll just interject right now, too, that if anyone would like to watch Camera Obscura, you can watch it now for free online with commercials on a service called Plex. And I uh, discovered this when I was doing research about you, and I watched mm. a, a good chunk of Camera Obscura last night. So, uh, uh -huh. yeah. <laughs> uh, and, but I got to say that there are some visual hallmarks in that movie that I really feel like it's... Uh, you're not afraid of close-ups and you there's really interesting close-ups and there's a lot of uh reflections even in that too with like you know camera lens close-ups and moving things and it's like and that's the same sort of stuff i thought of immediately when i think of like you know when i think of Locke and i think of the, your other work you know uh I, I i maybe i'm reading too much into this but i find a lot of camera people are afraid to really go in on the close-up 
I feel like a lot of cinematographers in particular, they kind of want to ease out on that frame and they think that, oh, maybe someone will reframe it in post if they have to be a little closer. In this movie, I'm, I'm sure this was film that you were shooting because it was like... Oh, uh, God, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So there, there isn't a lot of reframing. Tell me a little bit about your use of close-ups and how you feel about close-ups maybe theoretically or philosophy about close-ups. Well, let's put it this way. Filmmaking for me is about the human condition. That is what we are exploring. That is what we are trying to dig deeper into. And in discovering aspects of the human condition, we both have a kind of, there's an entertainment value there. But there is, for me, as a Greek who grew up in Cyprus with, you know, we were taught tragedy from an early age. We start Homer at about age 11, etc. And it's always been about a cathartic process in narrative. And the human condition is really, really understood through portraiture. The, the human face is the landscape of the human condition. So why would I not explore it? That is exactly what we're trying to do. And there are many ways to do it. And, you know, we had these amazing actors from day one on Camera Obscura and a great director. And we explored the human condition on that film, as I have done on every single film since then. That's what interests me. So I take it from there. There's no, I have no formula. I have no preconceived idea, but... Um, what feels right? Yes, I'm interested in portraiture more than anything else. Ah. All right. Well, that answers a real question for me because I, I really feel that in your work. When I'm looking at your work, you really get to read the emotion on the, on the actors' faces, which is, which is delightful. So, okay, tangent aside, let, let's go back. You know, your first feature film, Camera Obscura, and how was that process for you? Did you feel like that really like lit the fuse and you decided that this is the type of work you want to do or was it something else? I think it, that was the gift of a long process, Camera Obscura. And that process was all the studying I had done and all the experimentation. And I also got to prepare on that film for a great length with Hamlet. We really prepped that film. And for me, it's the process. I don't just, you know, I enjoy the process and I enjoy thinking about things. It's usually such a long road for many cinematographers after they leave. For me, my, my postgraduate was at the American Film Institute. So... You leave AFI and often it takes a while to get your first feature. This happened relatively early, although low budget, it happened relatively early. So I felt I um, could progress the cinematography from film school without having to go back to assisting or, or doing anything else. So to be able to do that under the age of 30 helped me decide, or not just decide, just be able to uh, start a career as a cinematographer without having to spend many, many years as an assistant. Yeah, there's a couple of different popular paths, certainly to get there. And deciding that you're a cinematographer day one is certainly a, a popular one. It used to be that wasn't an option for a lot of people. You had to yes. spend you had to spend decades sometimes working, yes. working your way up. But um, uh, you went to a film program and then Camera Obscura comes along. Now, did your career immediately just take off right after? No, it's a leading question. I know it's, it's there's a lot of strife and, and heartache, I think, always in every cinematographer's early years. And looking at your IMDb, I see you did a lot of shorts. It looks like you were if something came along, you wanted to shoot it. I see a lot of short work on there. What was their next sort of break? What was the next breakthrough for you? The next break was really I uh, went Camera Obscura went to Camera Image. Um, and at Camry Lage, I met Paul Sarossi, a wonderful cinematographer, brilliant cinematographer. And he was about to direct a film called Mr. In Between. Um, I had moved back to the UK. During my last year at AFI, 
we'd suffered a tragedy in my in my family. I lost my brother, and so I wasn't really able to stay in the states any any longer than Camera Obscura. I had to be near my parents, and London seemed like a a better option. And it, in a weird way, kind of worked to the best because independent cinema was still quite possible in the UK. A little bit more. Uh, than it was in Los Angeles when I left in around about 2000. All those wonderful independent companies, October Films, etc. They were all they were all shutting down around that time, and that kind of one million to two million dollar feature wasn't as easy in Los Angeles at the time as it was in London. So it was fertile ground for independent filmmaking in the early 2000s in the UK. And the next project I did was Mister In Between which was also for under a million, kind of a similar budget and time frame as Camera Obscura and similarly dark in a way. So I certainly shot anything, anything from short films to music videos to commercials to whatever I could actually do. That led to the real break was the late Roger Michelle and Enduring Love, which I think was my fourth film. But that was my first film with an established director. And that certainly changed things. Uh, it looks like it wasn't too much longer after that than you got movies like Mamma Mia and, of course, you know, Sleuth, which I think was, was at the beginning of your long collaboration with Kenneth Branagh. Yes, that was our first film. And again, how one thing leads to another. Uh, without Camera Obscura, I wouldn't have gotten Mr. In Between. Without Mr. In Between and Camera Obscura, Roger Michelle wouldn't have hired me. And then it's Ken had seen Enduring Love. And it, in particular, the opening sequence was what drew his attention to me. And that's why we met to talk about Sleuth. Well, it seems like post Sleuth, you've kind of been on fire. It's very prolific, your filmography. There's a lot going on here. Talk about, you know, the director-DP relationship is such an important one. And now that you've worked with Kenneth Branagh, I can't, I can't even count how many times. You, you must eight have, times. Eight times. You must have a, a really good relationship in shorthand because it's something that keeps working for both of you. Tell me about how that's sort of uh, grown and your collaboration may have, it may have changed over these, these past eight movies. Well, it's certainly, I think it's gotten better and better, our technique, because I think we challenge each other. He's such a virtuosic director that you could figure out certain things in your camera work that maybe with another director, they just wouldn't be able to keep the audience engaged or they wouldn't be able to sustain that kind of drama for those kinds of shots. So we certainly complement each other in that respect and we certainly challenge each other. And I think one of the things that I found that helps, I never take any relationship a professional relationship for granted. So I never assume that I will do the next Kenneth Branagh film. I always look forward to it, but I think, and I never assume with any director that I will do another film with them. So I think the friendship is based on work and based on a mutual respect and admiration and a pursuit of excellence. It must be very delightful though to get that call. <laughs> when you do get that call and it's like, hey, I got something I want you to read. <laughs> take take a look at this. Of course so, it is. is. Of course it is. And I think, you know, when you've done eight films with someone, we sit there and we discuss, like, how can we go deeper? How can we do something better? What are the things we're going to explore? Did we try them on another film? Were they successful? Could we push it further? So you, you have a little bit more of a, a history of both successes and mistakes that you can draw upon and, and either take confidence and conviction from or 
trepidation from, really. Let's talk about Belfast, another collaboration with Kenneth Branagh, shot gloriously, uh, or or I should say maybe displayed gloriously in black and white. You know, black and white is such a, a rarity for so many people these days. Was this your first all black and white feature film? Yes, although it's not all black and white. <laughs> there are splashes <laughs> I of guess, color. I guess that's true. I stand corrected. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I experimented with some black and white and camera obscura, and then the, subsequently the only person I've experimented with black and white in is with Ken. We've had splashes of black and white in most of our films. And the previous film, although it it, it was released later, uh, Death on the Nile does start in black and white. I love black and white films. Ken loves black and white films. It's something we refer to a lot. It's a language we understand. And it's one where given an opportunity to make a black and white film, we would always jump to that. So that was an easy decision. It was also, this was such a passion project. It was our lockdown project. Uh, Our ideas and our aspirations for the film were ours. We truly sat down and thought like, how can we make this special? How can we tell this story, particularly in a very, very immersive way? This should be a a window with no glass, this film. And black and white seemed to be a, a much clearer path to human emotion for us than a color palette. It just seemed less obtrusive. It seemed that in a way that this was not an indulgent way of saying the story. It was, it was a way of us not adding our stamp to it, of us just being observers in many ways. It's really lovely. I mean, it's it's really a beautiful looking movie. I, I, I'm a sucker for black and white in general, but I got to say that I really enjoyed this. And I definitely uh, I agree wholeheartedly with everything you said. This is, you know, my admiration here for, for what you've accomplished. It's uh, it's a personal story, but it's set against a grand canvas and times of the troubles in, in Northern Ireland. And there is an intangibility to the black and white, which is simultaneously incredibly real and feels historic, but it's, as you say, magical realism. It's like there is something then, because it's not what we're used to seeing anymore, and the black and white really stands out, that it is almost this magical uh, quality to it. And if that was your intention, you completely nailed it. But uh, like, I I almost feel like, how does one set out to achieve those two goals? Because it seems like it's such a difficult balancing act, and it'd be so easy just to fill something with visual effects and colors and whiz-bang, but but that's not what this is. This is very stripped down, very sparse. Uh, You you play with contrast in wonderful ways, too, and you're you're never confused about what's day or what's night, even though when you start to get into black and white, it's easy to really mix those things around. Talk a little bit about just your process of deciding how contrasty you were going to go or how you felt these scenes might might play out. Well, I think one of the things that we did with Ken is we just said, okay, why don't we give ourselves some rules about this? And there are certain limitations that were imposed. We had a tr- tremendous limitations of budget and schedule. We had huge limitations in, in COVID. And we said, well, let's add to that. Um, also kids. <laughs> kids, all, all those things. So so what can you do? And, and I find it's not too dissimilar with Locke. When you give yourself these limitations, you, you, you can make, I think, better films. You know, if, you, if I look at kind of Kieslowski films like uh, Red or Blue, they, they're very kind of simple, simple ways that they're told that are so powerful and so emotional. So Ken and I decided we weren't going to, you know, it was like, there was no lighting in this. It was natural lighting. Oh, wow. Practicals. Reflectors. Correct use yeah. of daylight. A few reflectors and some softening. I obviously had to use lights in the in the cinema, in the 
bus, which was a poor man's process. Mm. But even things like the wake, we had bought a lot of 1950s lights for the club scene in Death on the Nile. Mm. And so we thought, well, this 1960s, they were the oldest lights we could find, really. So we couldn't find 1930s lights, and this was the closest we, we could. And so the nightclub scene in Death on the Nile was shot with, with no other film lights, only the ones that you see, which you see often in some of the shots. We did the same thing for The Wake. We, we had a hall. It was an abandoned school hall, and, and that's what we did. And when we were outside, we kept to these rules. And we've always talked with Ken about not doing conventional coverage, that every shot is a particular point of view. It's earned. It is not repeated. And it says something. And that wherever we could, if we were to do that, we'd have to have uh, not just depth of field, but a real depth of action where, where, where you feel what's going on. You know where you are. I became maniacal about uh, leveling things and horizons being absolutely bubbled. And I just didn't want to pan or tilt. So I'd go a little bit wider. We'd ask the actors to come closer. If we felt they were in a dark space, that they'd have to move closer to the window and we'd stage it that way. And it's amazing once you start doing that. You know, we said we'd have no cranes, so we only used a ladder pod. And therefore, if you use a ladder pod and you don't use remote heads and all of that, you've got to climb up the ladder pod. It's got to be safe. It takes a certain amount of time. And therefore, you've got to be really precise about it. And you've got to ask for it when you need it and no more. So the story told itself. We listened and the story told itself. It told us where to put the camera, what to do, and we weren't forcing it. I don't want to say that it feels like an effortless movie. It looks like a lot of effort went into, into this movie. But uh, I have to imagine that you certainly made some line producers very happy when you said there's no technocranes and there's no, not, it's gonna, they're not going to have, you know, giant musco lights uh, lighting up these streets and, and everything else like that. So yeah. looking back, and I, I feel like this is a, a question that is always, I guess, potentially controversial. But when you go back and you look at your work and you review your work, when you see it on the big screen or on the little screen, do you ever say to yourself, man, I... I wish that this was slightly different. Do you ever have like those those moments of like constantly? I, <laughs> I, I, you know, constantly, I, all the time about everything. <laughs> but I also know when I got it right. Yeah, I know when and, I got it right, and I know that I certainly feel a certain conviction after Belfast. You know, having worked on enough movies myself, it's always weird being on the outside looking in and then trying to. And trying to judge how much fun the process might have been to to make what it is, because I will say that you know this very well. It's work. It's always mm -hmm. work. The weather is tough. The schedules are grueling. You don't know necessarily what time your day is going to start or end. All kinds of things that just are the realities of production. But are movies like Murder on the Orient Express and Death on the Nile, is this fun? Is this is fun work. It looks like this is probably, it certainly has its moments, moments of diversion, of, of looking like you're having a good time while you're making it. It, it's, it's, they're definitely fun to make, but, uh, and these films are fun to make because if you're given kind of under the right conditions, I've made, you know, with, with Ken, I know, you know, we give ourselves the right amount of planning. I have, you know, my gaffer Dan Lowe is, is wonderful. I've got a great team around. I surround myself, you know, you're only as good as your crew and your team. And, um, I try to keep as much of my crew for as long as possible. So that not only makes it a better shoot and a better quality of work. It, it gives me a better quality of life on set because I feel like I'm 
amongst friends and family. And we prepare for these types of films in the correct way. And we don't wing it. We certainly don't wing it. And therefore, I feel responsibility to my both my director and my producer. So it's an equal responsibility to both. So I think the stress comes when those things aren't happening right. So I try to avoid films like that. I've not been put in many situations like that because that's something I'd like to assess really well. And that's why I repeatedly like working with, with Ken. Yeah, uh, you, you mentioned earlier that you do a lot of testing. Can you talk a little bit about the, the testing process? When you test on a studio film, I think for me, I'm conscious of two things. One is to keep a spirit of experimentation, number one. So the idea that you go into a project and you don't know the right answer and that if you're willing to experiment and you're willing to go out of your comfort zone, you might find something there that is truly unique and might really fit the storytelling, but you've got to have an idea. For me, Ansel Adams nailed it quite a long time ago. You have to imagine the image you want to make, and then you have to go about taking the shot. So you have to have the imagination and the idea first. And maybe my painting background is good for that in that you start by sketching, not by painting. But in that, you've got to be a little experimental. Now, there is a duality to that in terms of your responsibility in a studio production where you also want to show them that you've found the look. And we often talk about this with Ken in that um, he said, I need you to feel comfortable that you've looked for things, but we also need to demonstrate that we have found the, the look here. What you're looking for. Yes. yes. So I would say in a way, it's that philosophy that might be more interesting to some listeners because the actual testing changes project by project and is up to you. And what are you imagining and how are you going to go about making that tangible, usable test? Now, some of that is how sustainable is that? So one, you know, I've toyed around with shallow depth of field and never really done it on a film. But we thought about it with Ken and we did, we, you know, one failed test on Belfast was a very, very shallow depth of field where you could barely keep two eyes in focus and it failed miserably. It was absolutely the wrong thing for Belfast. But we, if we hadn't done that, we wouldn't have gone, we went the opposite way. We said, well, I think this film's around a five, six and, and that's it. And we stuck to it. It's pretty much shot at five, six. You know, some things are quite subtle, like a, on a film like Belfast, it's like, I, I need to kind of know what my f-stop is throughout the film and I'm going to stick to it. And we actually found that by going the, the complete opposite way. In experimenting with no depth of field, we went one stop above our usual depth of field, which is a, a T4. And, and that's, I think, a, a wonderful example of how testing really pays off. Uh, you know, you don't want to get me started on talking about depth of field. It is uh, some something that I've uh, gone into for a very long... Uh, I go into with many many of my clients at, at work, but just in, in general discussions about formats and depth of field and angle of view and, and all of that sort of stuff. But I really appreciate, you know, I, I feel like real DPs are not afraid of 5.6. They're really not. You know, re really, like, uh, there, there's a plenty of people out there. I feel like it's almost a mark of the amateur to always be at the the wide open, to be at the wide open unnecessarily. And, I, and I'm not trying to disparage anyone who who loves to work at, at a wide open or for whatever it is. But the incessant almost need, I feel like what I always hear about is, oh, I have to have 
particular lenses or I always have to work in a particular way so that we can absolutely have to add 10 stops of neutral density so that we can get to this, you know, very, very shallow depth of field. I don't think that's what people want. I don't think that I don't think that's what the audience wants. I don't think they want to live in a world where everything is out of focus. So, Harris, I think that we only have a, a little bit of time left here, and I, I really appreciate these insights and into your, your work and your process. If people want to get more of you in their life, is there a place online that, that you do, you do any social media or things like that? I do have a website. Zabalukos.com is my website. It's a professional website. Uh, is, is it horribly uh, out of date? It is. It's, it's recently been updated. Oh, good, um, good. Yeah, it's great. I, I, I think I should work on it a bit more and maybe do a bit more of my stills, but it's got some up-to-date stuff. And then Instagram is really a bit more personal and family things. But, uh, you know, we all have a, a personality. We're not just the films we make. So I think both are necessary, really. I agree completely. Okay, so I think that this is a good place to leave it. We're going to go ahead and put links in our show notes over at camnoir.com where people can go and they can find you online. Uh, I also just want to say, like, congratulations on uh, Belfast being nominated for Best Picture of the Year. That's a a tremendous honor to have shot the movie that is nominated for Best Picture. And I really hope that you guys win. It's a lovely film and uh, it's gotten a lot of great recognition and it would just be the icing on the cake. Well, thank you. That's very kind of you. Wow. Well, there's a lot of great films this year, and we're just honored that people go to the cinema and, and watch our films. So uh, anything extra is just it's just icing on the cake. But we're grateful for the, for the love. Harris, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Well, that was great, Ilya. Amazing to have Harris on here. Just kick-ass work all the way around. Uh, yes, indeed. And hey, Ben, it's our favorite time of the show. And you know what time it is? I believe it is time to pay the bills. We're going to pay those bills. Uh, we got to thank right. our good friends over at Aerie. Aerie, little right. company based out of Germany. May never heard, heard of, of it. Yeah, yeah exactly. Never, so. never, never. So uh, they have a new wireless follow focus system called the Hi5. I may have mentioned it on the show before. It is the fifth iteration essentially Mm. of their wireless camera control units the previous one was the wcu4 now they're on the high five uh the high five was very hotly anticipated and i'm pleased to announce that it is now shipping hot red cameras already received our first batch of them and they are uh, being whisked out to customers as we speak and and really it's like they they upped their game you know there's only a few sort of like very high-end companies that are in the remote follow focus uh space really you know it's preston and c-motion and airy those are really like the, the top bananas here and the high five system is really incredible it's the best system that they've ever made and i gotta say that it may not sound uh, affordable, but it's about $10,000 for the, the hand unit. And that's really a bargain for, for what you're getting. It's really incredible. I mean, from area, I mean, like we're talking like serious pro gear. This is not, you know. Exactly. This isn't like you working by yourself with your DSLR. This is this is for serious movies and TV and stuff. So that actually is a great price. And, and I hear people say all the time, like, oh, my God, why why don't they just use like autofocus? And that reveals a lot about the the person who's asking that question because they don't really understand that what's going on with the system is, is a very skill-based uh, job. It's not something that can just be automatically done. And when you do turn on autofocus, uh, most people have seen it. Like the autofocus has a mind of its own and will do its own thing and you cannot rely on autofocus 
reliably enough to actually tell the movie the way most people want to tell a movie. And you can't waste time by having to do the same things over and over again because autofocus just decided that it was going to suddenly throw to the background or suddenly do something else. Yeah, so. imagine you're shooting a big shot with an explosion that you can only do once and you and you had your camera on autofocus. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and and it just like decides at that moment, just like, ooh, ooh it, it just got bright and it's ma- it makes the, uh, the lens swim. You, you can't. You can't do that. No, not, not, not at all. And, and being a former focus puller myself, I can tell you there's a lot of discipline and, you know, uh, we didn't have all of the great tools that, that people have these days. So I think it was a even more difficult, but the tools aside, it's really the skill of someone who's able to understand, anticipate, and as they say, use the force to, to figure out what's going, what should be in focus at any given time and to make sure that they're doing everything however many times a second they need to, to make sure that things don't go soft and don't go out of focus. And occasionally you see it, you see like, why is that shot out of focus now? Well, someone, you know, maybe an actor didn't hit their mark. Maybe a camera moved at a different time. Maybe the dolly grip started to move too early or the camera assistant just didn't actually get to the point they needed to get it on the lens or on their remote system. Right. Right. Hey, hey, moment, hey, so. uh, weird, weird piece of trivia. You know, in the original Manchurian candidate, mm. there's a scene where the focus puller had the focus set on the wrong part. And it's supposed to be when the main character is like, coming out of a haze and it was a shot of uh, a Frank Sinatra and the scene is still in the movie out of focus. Frank Sinatra's like, I'm going to the sands. I'm done. I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not hanging out <laughs> here anymore. There you go. And took off <laughs> and they only had it out of focus and it made the movie and it kind of works because he's mesmerized or, you know, like it, it feels intentional, but it was just, the AC fucked up. <laughs> well, sometimes the, the AC uh, has a it's a perfectly good reason. Other times not. Other times that that was just the only take they had. And, and you know, I, I've I've seen shots that are out of focus, make movies, too, because an editor said, well, the performance was so much better. Yeah. yeah. You know, that, that's it, it's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of pressure on camera assistance. I mean, there's very few people who are engaged every single time the camera is rolling the way the first AC is pretty mission critical job. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. Anyway, Airy High Five, uh, you can get it at Hot Red Cameras. Uh, Hot Red Cameras had some in stock uh, that I think are probably all pre-sold and gone out. But uh, if you want it and if you're interested or you want to know about it, uh, reach out to Hot Red Cameras. We can definitely help you with that. Do that. And so, watch the original Manchurian Candidate. It's, absolutely. Uh, That's a great it's movie. A, it's a wonderful movie. Hey, and before we go to short ends real quick, let's talk about the giveaway that we have for Judith Weston's new edition of Directing Actors. That's right. If you go to our Instagram and comment on the Judith Weston episode post, we're going to pick someone coming up here real soon and you're going to win a copy of that book. Signed, I believe. I believe signed. And if you're inside the continental U.S., we'll ship it to you for free. If you win and you're outside the U.S., I think we might ask you for a couple of bucks to cover the shipping. But if you're in the U.S., no worries at all. We're going to send you that book. All right. So go to Instagram, find the Judith Weston Instagram post and comment away. Please, please do. It's a great book. And now, short ends. So, Ben, it is short end time. What's your obsession this week? What are you what are you into? Well, I uh, don't do this often and I don't have success with it when I do it often, which was I rolled the dice on a movie on a streaming service that I had never heard of and knew nothing about. And in this case, it was a movie called Fresh, directed by somebody named Mimi Cave and the cinematographer, somebody named Pavel Pogorzarski. I hope I got your name right, Pavel. Beautiful, beautiful looking film. Uh, it is a horror movie, so uh, not for people not inclined towards horror. And it's a horror movie that involves a good bit of uh, cannibalism. 
uh, and a topic that you that you love to revisit. <laughs> I uh, ne- never get tired of good of a good cannibal yarn, and uh, it is gorgeous. It is funny. It stars uh, Daisy Edgar Jones and Sebastian Stan. Oh yeah, uh, Sebastian Stan killing it. Yeah. Pam and Tommy. He plays Tommy Lee. Uh, you know, obviously the Winter Soldier. He is. I watched this movie and I'm like, somebody needs to cast him as Ted Bundy. He's so like dark and creepy and handsome all at once uh, and charming. Just a a brilliant, fun movie. Dark and uh, gross in places. And really had me rooting for the lead actor, um, Daisy Edgar Jones. Just brilliant and beautiful and dark and fucked up and everything that I wanted in a good horror movie. So uh, if, if you're looking for a good horror movie to check out and you have Hulu, check out Fresh. How about you, Ilya? What is your pet obsession of the week? Well, actually, it's it's a I guess it's a little bit of a, a downer, but um, all right. <laughs> I mean, I think it's something that deserves to be talked about and should be talked about and should be talked about regularly. And since we were already sort of talking a little bit about you know assistance when I was talking about Ari just a few minutes ago, I think it's it's appropriate to remind everyone that it was 25 years ago that uh, Brent Hirschman died after working a 19 hour day on Pleasantville, Pleasantville. Mm. Uh, wonderful movie, uh, tragic death uh, of Brent, who was the second AC on the movie. And I mean, look, I don't know what it is about camera assistance. And uh, and I mean, except that the fact that they work so damn hard and they're, uh, you know, it's it's such exhausting work. And of course, Sarah Jones famously, of course, uh, you know, was probably the, the more recent example of Brent Her- Hirschman. And I'm, I'm sorry that we have to keep, you know, still keep talking about this. But every time that something like this happens where somebody dies, then the industry has a period of time, it seems like, where they talk about, you know, how long are the work days and producers cutting corners. And I mean, it, I feel like rest is, is part of the same conversation yeah. as well, too. I was about to bring up rest. Uh, well, it, it wasn't just that Brent had worked a 19 hour day and that fell asleep while driving home. He also had worked f- four 15 hour days in a row directly before that. Oh, my and, God. Uh, his death did sort of kick off a movement uh, and inspired the 2006 documentary that Haskell Wexler put into it. You uh, put into it called "Who Needs Sleep," and really, we shouldn't still be having this conversation all these years later, but but we are. And unfortunately, terrible things keep keep happening to people. And I really kind of thought that when the the union was had authorized the strike that something might be done about this because really in other countries like, like France, they don't have these problems anymore. People work, you know, yeah. uh, very sane days and hour, hours and everything else, but we still keep going through it. And I don't know how many more people, I mean, one was too many and I can't even count now how many times this has happened, but very famous, at least in, in, in my former guild in, in local 600, there was Brent and Sarah and now Helena Hutchins. So it's like, Man, it's a uh, it's 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 really it's it's horrible. But I, I know, I, like, I, yeah, I I don't do that. It it kept coming up up around Helena Hutchins that uh you know she was I think the second person in twenty in twenty or thirty years to be shot on on a set because of a weapons malfunction. But really, I, when you think about it in the broader scope of people who are dying on set because of bad safety or be, and and I would put long hours down number as part one of bad yeah safety. absolutely the, the rush to try um, to get things done uh, you know in, in the wrong way possible as quickly as possible and it, it should never be that way so I remember when when I was talking about striking just a few months ago talking to uh, my father-in-law about it and 
you know, my father-in-law is a really cool guy and, but he's not in the film business. And, and I think in his mind, like if you're working on movies, you're, you know, eating lobster Thermidor and getting massages every day. Yeah. And well, it's like, that happens you know, too, of course, you know, we're always yeah, getting yeah, our, but, our lobster but, and massage. No. But yeah, but like, it's not, it's not, how, and that's why I want to be a director. No, but, it, but it's, uh, the ACs, you know, the, the people in IATSE, the people who, who carry the gear, the people who set stuff up like these people, this is a, it's a hard job. You're on your feet a lot you don't have a lot of downtime the second someone calls for you you better have whatever it is they want it's a hustle it's a job that's a hustle it's also freelance and freelance is its own kind of difficulty in terms of a lifestyle but but let's just talk for a second too about the pressure of the second ac the second ac does i would say get some of the least amount of respect and and in the era of film in particular the highest amount of like responsibility for everyone's day's work. I don't think most people understand how critical that job is to to what everyone else is doing there. All the film, basically the, the AC spends a good portion of their life working in the dark, either in a dark room yeah. because film can't be exposed to light at all. Or otherwise, it's ruined or they have to be inside of what's a, a, you know, a black bag, a dark bag. They're reaching their hands and they're taking all the film before it's been exposed And they have to make sure it's completely light sealed and they have to move it and thread it into the magazine, which is going to run through the camera. It's a fairly technical job because you have to do it quickly, too, and you have to do it accurately. That's assuming a film workflow, obviously. This is what I was saying. In the era of film, in the era of film, you you had to go through this process to get the film into the camera. And then when it was done, after perhaps millions of dollars were spent, you know, having whatever was going to take place in front of the film and the camera, the first assistant, they had to make sure it was all in focus. And at that time, because video taps are so poor, sometimes it was very difficult to tell visually whether or not the shot was even focused. So the first AC had to do something that essentially had almost no confirmation at all that they had done their job correctly, which also goes to explain why some lenses are so incredibly expensive in the the film industry, because the mechanics are so critical and you have to do testing in advance to make sure that all your lenses are actually accurate. Most people look at like their still photo lenses and they think, oh, 10 feet on there. That must really be 10 feet. No, 100% right now. Everyone has got a still camera. Go go take a tape measure, measure from about where the film plane is out 10 10 feet and set your lens at 10 feet and, and see if that's actually in focus. I can tell you wonders, 100% still photo lenses are not made to that level to be accurate. So you have all of this pressure on essentially two people, two people. It's not necessarily a team of people, but maybe there's a few others, depending on if it's a multi-camera show, but you got all this pressure that things have to be, you know, accurately focused and the film has to be handled perfectly. You can't let a single bit of light in there well, maybe you can, but you don't want to. If you do let light in there, everything that everyone worked on could be ruined. So, you know, the ACs, very little respect, very low pay, very high responsibility. And so, look, the, the pressures that are involved in the job can can absolutely be immense. And the people who can do it for decades uh, of their life get so good at this and they just get good at dealing with the pressure. And I, I'll tell you, it's like, you know, they the things that they are inside their control, they're just experts. And when you watch those people at, you know, do their craft, they're so incredibly confident and speedy and, and everything else. It, it's, it's brilliant to watch. And, you know, uh, my hat's off to everyone out there who's doing it. It's changed a lot in the digital realm, but regardless, some of the pressures uh, still absolutely exist there and you, you have to do things correctly. Otherwise you, you, you don't end up with a movie. Oh <laughs> yeah. Well in the digital realm now, now it's uh, the DIT has a lot of that pressure but it but it's it's like you have a digital file that if you accidentally don't back it up you're gonna format a card put it back in the camera and if you haven't properly backed that stuff up whatever happened in front of the camera just doesn't doesn't exist in any form 
Yes, that that's true. The responsibilities have shifted a bit, but there are quite a few productions, even very large productions, Disney productions in particular, that don't have a DIT, that there's a media manager who's handling that too. So you're talking then about a much lower wage person who's handling all of the data oh, yeah. for the day. So, yeah. And people still do shoot film. So uh, Of course, they, they absolutely do. So anyway, so I think that's that's kind of it for my shorthand. I don't mean to be so dark and to go on these these rants, but uh, I, I kind of feel like it, it's a responsibility that that anyone who's working in the industry, you know, uh, should should be should be thinking about this stuff and should be thinking about the very real people who lost their lives, uh, you know, in, in the pursuit of uh, just trying to do their job like like anybody else. Mm. Wow. Intense. Sorry. <laughs> I, you know, we could have talked about, you know, the Ukraine. You know, which is probably actually everyone's like secret short end right now. A secret obsession is like, you know, what's what's happening next. But on a slightly connected note, I went down a weird Internet rabbit hole the other day about the uh, the John Wayne movie, The Conqueror, where he played Genghis Khan. Mm -hmm. Um, That's an odd odd casting choice. Well, yeah. uh, And later was said, like, he regretted having taken a role that he was so wrong for because he had to even wear like eye prosthetics to make himself look. Yeah. But uh, outside of that horrible thing, it was the last movie Howard Hughes ever produced. Mm. And they filmed it in a place that was used for nuclear bomb tests about a year earlier. And they were assured that that there (laughs) There was was no radiation. You're going to be no radiation. And apparently, like one day they had a Geiger counter on set and John Wayne was holding it. It was going off the charts. And he was like, "This, this thing must be broken. Of the, it was like 210 people worked on that movie. 90 of them came down with cancer. Oh my God. That's terrible. And a, a ton of them, including the director and John Wayne, died of cancer. Oh, geez. Well, I know it's it's definitely not exactly the same, but uh, talking about like cutting corners on, on, on movies is, is a perfect example. Um, there, there was another movie I worked on now. I, I believe it was, you know, much safer, but I day played on the movie Sphere many years ago. It was, you know, uh, Dustin Hoffman was in it. It, it uh, you know, they shot at Mare Island in. Uh, yeah, I remember that movie. OK, so I thought it was very interesting because when we were shooting in this this giant like former military hangar. And there were all these like patches of concrete, you know, evenly spaced all throughout the building. And I asked someone one day, I said, what's with all these like patches of concrete? And I said, oh, that's where the core samples were taken. I said, core samples? What do you mean a core sample? And they said, well, they used to store some really like ugly, terrible, toxic waste in this building. And so they wanted to take samples to make sure it oh was God. safe for people like us to come in here and, and shoot all day. And I was like, really? And they said, oh, yeah, it was fine. And, th- and they said, but did you look over at craft service? And I said, no. And they said, go look at the stripes on the ground where uh, where craft service is. And so sure enough, I, I walked over to craft service and on the ground was this big, like, you know, probably 18 inch wide stenciled yellow stripe around with like these hazard markings and this this these words, st- you know, spray painted stenciled next to it. it said hazardous waste accumulation area. So, what? <laughs> yes. And this was not like, you know, some people on the crew like messing around like because, you know, sometimes when you have props departments and stuff, people mess around. They want to do something fun. It's a joke for the crew. No, they, like supposedly, I guess they stored like nuclear waste and other like horrible stuff inside this place where we were shooting. But I'm sure that the production got a really good deal on it. So that's, that's horrifying. I, I don't. I oh don't my know. God, that's terrible. Yes. I, I, I wasn't there for too many days, but it was like every day I was there, I was like, wow, maybe I should have a Geiger counter. Maybe I should oh, like, you know, that's the worst. So to, to my knowledge, nobody got sick out of working on Sphere. So it probably was fine. But, you know, it wouldn't be the first time that production put the safety of the crew 
and or the cast behind uh, getting a deal. I'm sure there's plenty of other movies and situations like that where uh, anyway, I thought it was interesting. At least it was disclosed to the crew. Uh, at least the crew who was there all the time. It wasn't disclosed to, disclosed to me until after I got there. But, you know, whatever. I, I guess that's how it goes. That's rough, man. It is rough. Hazardous waste accumulation area. Exactly where the tuna fish sandwiches were. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, so so Ben, I think let's thank some people. Let's let's mercifully end this episode. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, uh, first and foremost, let's thank Alana Cody, who, uh, as I said earlier, uh, we would not have crested a million downloads i don't think there's any chance we would have gotten anywhere near that without all the hard work alana has put into this and continues to put into this so thank you alana yeah thank you let's thank ben katz ben katz he's going above and beyond and making things happen in incredible turnaround times really tight schedules he's getting this this show out week after week we love it thank you ben you're the best and we should also say he's been there from the very very first episode case alatraxi come on that's right let's a round yeah, of let's applause give it up give it up for case round of applause for case alatraxi holy crap who like uh one day in like 2012 or 2011 i was like hey i'm thinking about doing this podcast could you make us some music and he was like uh, are you sure you want to waste your time making a podcast? And I was like, yeah, no, I'm really excited about it. So he was like, all right. And all right, here's your bill. $140,000 later. No. <laughs> but uh, no, he made us this music and I, and, and I love it. And you know, we sometimes talk about getting new music and rebranding and I, I kind of love what we've got. I don't know. Uh, all right. So Ben, where can people find you if they, if they want to get more Ben rock, uh, please go to uh, Facebook to my group needs a werewolf join needs a werewolf, pitch me some movie ideas or books or songs or whatever, uh, how you would work a werewolf in and then head over to benrockonline.com And, uh, you can, because, uh, it's a long story why I don't have benrock.com, but benrockonline.com, uh, go over there. You can find my social media, this stuff. You can see my real, see a picture of me working with John Lithgow. I mean, come on. Uh, all right. I, I got, I got one for you. Men are from Mars. Women are from Venus and werewolves are from hell. I mean, wouldn't they just no. be from the moon if we're going to use celestial uh, bodies? I guess that's true. Uh, I, I guess I, I don't but know. You know okay. What, so maybe how about the secret? But with werewolves, do it. Come on and pitch me, pitch it, bring it. The lo- uh, law of attraction lends itself to werewolves, obviously. Um, well, Elia, where can people find you? Uh, uh, <laughs> they can find me over at Hot Rod Cameras, hotrodcameras.com. I'm there most days, and uh, people call me up to talk to me about lenses and camera packages werewolves. and uh, werewolves you, you name it that's that's where you can find me and uh yeah happy to help you with all of your camera needs excellent excellent well that about wraps us up for this week we will see you here next week thanks for listening this has been the cinematography podcast presented by hot rod cameras find your next camera lens or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com don't forget to subscribe to our show on itunes and connect with us on facebook and twitter thanks for listening you